Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we heard from one of the co-founders of Facebook, who spoke about his concerns about growing economic inequality in America. This week, we hear from a software engineer who is seeking to bring greater diversity and accountability to the algorithms that make decisions about us. It's very important to not just focus on building things, although, you know, as a geek myself, it would be my, my dream to just, you know, just keep building stuff. But also very important to look at the impact of technology you're building and not at a later stage when you've launched a product and now you're just terrified of the consequences. But use the process with an ethical design mindset to begin with. And it's not that hard. That was Kriti Sharma, an advisor on artificial intelligence at the UK software company Sage. She came into the FT to talk to me recently about the ethics of software design. Welcome, Kriti. Can you tell us, how did you get interested in this subject? So, it's a bit of a silly story. When I was a teenager, I was really interested into robotics. It fascinated me a lot. So I thought I will use AI and robotics to solve a problem that was very dear to me, which was fetching Snickers from the snack bar. <laughs> and then I built my first robot that would go and bring chocolates. And it learned every time. It got smarter every day. Well, so um, it would go to a vending machine to get... Yes, so it would go to a vending in. machine and put the money in and pick the snack and bring it back to me. Even that simple process, it had to learn a lot of new things every day, including my patterns. It was quite stupid in the beginning, would bump into people, but then learned over time how to be smarter and map the shortest path. So that was my introduction to AI. That as must a have made you very popular at school. <laughs> well, now I'm into much healthier habits and I'm using my knowledge of AI to do better things than fetching snacks. So what AI products have you developed at Sage? At Sage, we're very much focusing on using AI to automate end-to-end -end processes. If you think about businesses in the UK alone, they are spending 120 days a year on admin activities. This is things like filing reports, sending invoices, looking at tax returns, that kind of stuff, which is really very bad for our productivity as a nation. And also talking to a lot of business owners and entrepreneurs, it's not the most fun part of running their business. So we looked at how we could use technology to create equality. And that's really the theme in everything I do with AI, whether it's commercial or for social impact, it's a fascinating tool to create equality in the world. Now, a small business owner, medium-sized business owner does not have the same luxury as the CEO of Sage of an HR department or a finance department. But we believe using AI, we can augment the capabilities to give them that information. So we're focusing on using AI and automation to design the processes end to end and completely turn it around so humans can get the benefit of it. 
and I often get asked so what happens to the humans who were previously involved in the process. And the good news is that if you take a human design-centered approach, then you're not just looking at efficiencies in the system, but you're designing for how humans and machines work together. And that's a lesson we learned much earlier on, that it's not just about building the coolest piece of technology that is the most efficient, but it's about designing experiences that work for humans. And is that happening in practice? I mean, you're suggesting that the AI systems can relieve the boring, tedious parts of a job and enable people to focus on the more interesting creative parts. But is there a net job reduction as a result of AI in the companies that you work with? It's unfair to say there will be no job impact. There definitely will be. And, you know, I'd love to use this forum to call out on technology companies or whoever is using AI to think about the consequences on the economy and the workforce. We cannot be in denial anymore that there will be no job loss. But having said that, there is a great opportunity to focus on retraining the workforce, giving them the new skills, and making sure a lot of different kinds of people are involved in technology processes and designing it. And personally, from my experience of building AI since I was a teenager, when I've worked with people from diverse backgrounds, that's where we've had the most powerful impact. So in some ways, it's the end of the programmer era or the geekdom where a bunch of geeks are building technology but people from different backgrounds coming together. So AI needs to be more open, less elite, people from all kinds of backgrounds, whether they are the creatives, the technologists, those who understand social policy, getting together to solve real world problems. Now, there are a whole lot of issues there I want to come back to, but first I'd like to ask you a bit more about the bot you developed at Sage called Peg, which made you very famous in the company. What does this do? Um, So it works as a sidekick to entrepreneurs and even employees in the businesses, and it does a lot of their tasks that they don't want to do. For instance, it can look at your books, accounts, and give you information on how the business is doing in simple terms. So if you don't understand accounting jargon, you don't have to worry about it. Understanding complex tax-related information, payroll, these are the scenarios which are quite difficult for people building their businesses to figure out because they're not experts in that area. Just giving them a 24-7 assistance who has great personality and is always there to help them run their business. So managing finances, managing payments and people when they're hiring teams. Also, in the context of organizations, I'll just give you one example how we're redesigning experiences. When we look at performance reviews and feedback, today it's in most cases a very artificial process where once every six months you'll awkwardly ask your coworkers to send you some 360 feedback But using AI, we can continuously monitor and collect feedback in real time from how people are behaving within teams and use that information rather than once in a moment. How creepy does that get? Um, (laughs) That's a great question. And this is where the design principles apply, where it's always based on permission and whether the value add is good enough. So before we start collecting or using the information and valuation processes, we would always ask for permission or approval from the colleagues. But the good news is it takes a lot of the pain away and makes the process of reviews, that's just one example, more engaged and embedded into the day-to-day works. It's not just an artificial process anymore. And is Peg, it's a chatbot, is it? Or do you type in the questions? Or? So it's a smart assistant, yeah. Um, it works over voice and text. And it's just want to call out, when we talk about AI, bots or assistants come up most frequently, but that's just one component of AI. Just to break it down a bit, AI includes natural language processing, understanding, computer vision, machine learning, deep learning. So the conversational interface is just 
tiny component of sure. it. And the best value that we can get out of AI is when different techniques come together. Now, there must be some incredibly interesting questions that are asked to PEG. At Sage, what do you do with that data? I mean, is that something you can use to analyze the way that the businesses operate? What are the most immediate, urgent issues that they have to face? I mean, that must give you an amazing data pool. It does. And it also gives us great insights into how users behave and interact with technology itself. So I'll just tell you, a lot of the times our customers do express a lot of love to PEG. So for example, they would say, I love you. It's sort of the most common statements. And I work with a lot of other AI developers, including the large technology companies. And it's a very common theme. For some reason, humans have a need to express their feelings to AI. But on a more commercial note, it also gives us great insights into what users actually want because they would start requesting that information or when we send them intelligent alerts or information, then they would react to it and give us follow-up information. So the whole relationship with the customers becomes much deeper and more real-time than ever before. And it's a great time to look at how AI can actually help us get closer to customers in the business world because the days of sitting in a focus group or those awful surveys you send to a customer 10 days after they've done something, those days are over. And now in real time, you can understand what people are saying. And also over time, what we will see in the next couple of years is not only using what they're saying, but how they're saying it. What's the tone that they're using when they're communicating and analyzing not just the text of the speech, but also the way they're interacting with technology. Is there any resistance in some of the companies you work with to working with PEG? Do some people just say, I'm, I'm not going to work with the bot? Um, not really, because I would say it varies on certain user types. But the good news is, at least for us, there has been a huge consumer shift towards AI in the last couple of years with home assistants in most homes now. You know, Amazon have done a great job, so have Google. And Siri has evolved quite a lot since its early days. So that initial reluctance has gone away. And I was just reading the other day, now 30% of searches are voice-based. That's people searching the web. So it is becoming a lot more mainstream, and we will continue to see so. What is still not completely understood is that AI is not just when you speak with machines. We're already using it every day. And when you're searching anything on Google and it gives you the top results, you submit your CV on a recruitment website and it goes into a dark hole, or you use that autocorrect that may or may not always work. That's AI in action every day. So AI works most effectively in a way when it's invisible. You don't know that you're using it. You don't even know, exactly. And that's pretty much the power of it. In some cases, you would see it in the front end, and we think it's a bit unusual because it's just the beginning of it. For example, when you speak to a voice assistant like Alexa, and it would do something. You just feel, oh, that's AI. But it's just yet another form of AI. And it's quite new. Even when kids talk to these machines, they don't even care. It's not unusual to them. So we will evolve as species. A lot of economists now are talking about we're in a productivity crisis. But the products that you're producing are surely producing quite a lot of increase in productivity in a kind of lay term in a workplace. Is it possible to quantify the impact in productivity terms of some of the products that you're turning up? Oh, gosh, I don't know off the top of my head. But what we do see is change in behavior. So we've seen 
users from looking at the reports once a quarter in the old way to now engaging with it a lot more in real time. We can quantify certain tasks like you know, where they would spend hours doing expense reports or invoices. Now, a lot of that is being automated behind the scenes. But the great power is really coming from giving them the intelligence and democratizing it. You're not just relying on a human analyst coming in and doing this for you. You just get information at your fingertips to hopefully make more data-driven decisions. How else are you using AI across Sage? A lot of it is also within our own operations. Customer support has been a massive area for us. Also looking at HR and people operations, which is a great area of high potential because even if you look at just recruiters today, they're spending 50 to 60% of their time not talking to candidates or businesses, but just chasing for feedback, scheduling interviews, doing stuff that an AI would love to do. So that's another area. But most importantly, in business decision making, and I think that's a very interesting point where we are moving away from just using AI to do analytics or predictive stuff, which you could even argue is just analytics in its form, but to using AI for decisioning purposes as well and reasoning. And that gets really exciting. At the same time, it's important to do it in the right way when you give AI so much power. You know, there are a couple of companies who have appointed an AI on the board, which is an interesting phenomenon and a way to demonstrate that you're using data-driven, data-powered technologies to make decisions, which can often be a challenge in large companies. But having said that, I would always caution that even though we are always told that data tells the real picture, when you look at a lot of biases that AI can learn from, it might not always be true. Now, there clearly is a lot of focus at the moment on the ethics of AI. How do you ensure that the products that you put out there are used only for good? We do it by design. And, you know, we were one of the first companies in the world to set out our ethics of code, which we designed. And what are um, the main principles of that ethics? So, so number one is it needs to reflect the diversity of its users. And to give you an example, you know, a lot of us remember the horror story when Google Photos started tagging African-American people as gorillas because it wasn't trained on a non-white skin. And the solution is not just to turn off all kinds of tagging for gorillas, which is what they had to do in the short term, but to use diverse data sets to train the AI. And that's what we do because we want to make sure that AI works for everyone, including the edge cases, which technology can often forget. <laughs> so we do a lot of work on making sure our AI is not learning human biases. And biases, unfortunately, everywhere in our lives, even when you're looking at in the financial services credit scoring based on postcode, it can make some decisions who's more likely to default. Um, criminal justice system, there's certain backgrounds of people who are more likely to be repeat offenders or not. And that's just really scary because it's impacting our lives. And most of the times you don't even know about it, which brings me to our next principle which is about accountability and transparency. We often see in the media these days and also in our lives around us that algorithms are treated as black box and the computer made the decision. We don't know what made the machine decide this is the next movie you should watch. It's okay when it's just about casual entertainment, but when it comes to financial decisions or healthcare, it's very important to create algorithms that are transparent. So when we design products, we always make sure there's auditability in the solutions and that we hold the software to account, 
the people building it to account. To what extent does that explainability function actually hamper the functionality of the AI? So that's a trade-off you got to make. And it's not true that every AI can be fully transparent. It's hard, but you got to make the right design decisions for the problem you're solving. And you got to think about it. And the good news now is more people are questioning whether it is the right thing to do or not before making that decision. And also regulation is helping with that. For example, GDPR, which is the new data protection regulation kicking in, is including certain clauses about holding algorithms to account. There was a report out recently by OpenAI and some other organizations about the potentially malicious uses of AI. And part of the argument they were making was that it's not necessarily the big existential threat of a superintelligence. It's the unintended consequences of very simple, narrow domain AIs that are used in ways that people just don't anticipate. Is that right, do you think? Absolutely, yes. And this is why it's very important to not just focus on building things, although, you know, as a geek myself, it would be my, my dream to just, you know, just keep building stuff. But also very important to look at the impact of technology you're building and not at a later stage when you've launched a product and now you're just terrified of the consequences, but use the process with an ethical design mindset to begin with. And it's not that hard. We can start doing it from today. And just the way you teach an AI, it kind of learns like kids in some ways, a good analogy where you teach them to do things, but you also teach them the values of what's good and bad. And we got to embed that in AI also. Okay. What is the greatest potential for good of AI? I mean, speaking more generally outside the kind of corporate world, it's obviously going to have a big impact on our society as well. I know that you're focusing on that as an individual very much. Where do you think AI is going to improve the lives of people? So I'll give you a personal example. I grew up in India and the school I went to had 80 students to one teacher. It was the norm in India, it wasn't unusual. But what happened off the back of that was the teacher was only able to focus on the top five and the bottom 10 students and no one else was given the attention. But now imagine an AI working alongside every kid as a tutor and giving them that personalized experience and for teachers to get an assistant to focus on the things that actually matter. So the AI could take care of attendance or tracking or grading and the teacher could focus on building the relationship with the kids. So that's just you know one example of scaling human capability to give everyone the information they need. Another example is a project I'm working on in South Africa where there's a huge problem with domestic abuse and violence against women. One in three women in the country face abuse from their intimate partner at some point in life. That's a massive number, yet there is very little information or help or advice available to them at a government level and also organizationally. And even law enforcement agents are not the safest people to speak with. So how does the app work? Can you talk us so through an the, example? Yes. Um, so just to add to the challenge there, most of the times the solution for them is to pick up the phone and call the services. If you're living with the abuser in the house, speaking to someone on the phone is not the option. So we use an AI assistant that would give them the right information at the right time and they can speak with it confidentially, they can chat and get access to information about their rights. Historically, they would need to get services of an advisor or a lawyer and that's just not scalable or achievable for a lot of people, especially from lower socioeconomic groups. So for them to get an assistant, well, more an advisor 
alongside them is very powerful. And I just spent two days with a lot of these people testing the product. And they just shared something incredible, which made me think, oh, wow, AI has another use, which was they said, when I speak with my friends or family or even my community in the church, they could often judge me for being in this situation, whereas this solution does not judge me at all, has no emotions, and it feels like an easier thing to speak with a machine and to talk to a human about such a personal matter. Now, what we see here is the AI is obviously not replacing a human support network, but it's filling a gap that wouldn't be filled otherwise and giving them information 24-7. One of the great challenges of the technological sector is gender imbalance at the moment. How do you think we can have a more appropriate balance of gender in tech? So I think there are two problems there. Number one, we portray an image of what a technologist looks like, and it's always somebody who looks like Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk, and it's not very likely that they would look like me. And also, we need to look at what the definition of a technologist is in today's world. Previously, it was somebody who could write code and build things. But in today's world, it's much broader than that. And AI or other technologies are becoming more democratized, they're turning into platforms. So if you wanted to build a technology solution, you can. You need to think about the business problem, the impact, the design, and technologies there to help you. As a technologist myself, it's a bit difficult to admit, but the reality is we've given a godlike status to techies and they're like the new cool kids. In reality, that's just yet another skill. So we need to stop dramatizing it, making it more normal and accessible to everyone. So just you know, redefining what a technologist means and does not have to look like a certain kind of person. Making funding more accessible to different kinds of groups. At the moment, the amount of funding that goes to female entrepreneurs is, is just appalling. So we need to change that. It's a systemic problem. And then lastly, making the education about technology more fun and real. What's actually in the curriculum to what we really do on a day-to-day -day basis is quite different. So opening up the mindset to that, we are launching a program to help young people get access to AI education. These are kids who did not go to university or don't have formal education, and they're building awesome things with AI. So it's open to all. Every company says that they want to hire AI experts at the moment. But as you're saying, there's a real skills limitation on this. Do you think we need at a corporate and a national level to invest massively in this as an area? Or do you think that we actually need to spend more time figuring out that design, how AI is going to be embedded in human society? Yes, there is a big hype around hiring more data scientists, machine learning, analytics, AI people at the moment. But at the same time, I think businesses need to focus on what value they're going to get out of AI, focus on the problem pair the right people with the AI guys. Because, you know, an AI technologist, a machine learning person, for instance, is not an expert in journalism. You are the expert in journalism. So if you want to build a solution for journalism, you can't just give a problem to an AI person for them to magically solve it for you. And that's what's actually happening in the narrow AI domain at the moment. We're just relying on very specialized skills and not sharing enough. So First up, we got to focus more on collaborating with different streams of people together to really get the value out of it. And secondly, we're missing a trick with not retraining existing workforce in companies to become AI ready. That's a great opportunity and a quick win, which is great for companies as well as the colleagues to go through that process. LinkedIn and Airbnb did it quite well 
where they gave the opportunity to all the engineers to retrain themselves as machine learning experts. And I think we could do a much better job at it. Fast forward 10 years, what AI-enabled products do you think are going to be most noticeable or unnoticeable in our lives but doing important things? Oh, I'm really hoping that AI will be solving some of the real-world problems and not just driving more ad clicks and ad revenue. And I'm really hoping that AI will drive more equality in the workplace. One of my dreams would be to see an AI that could help people solve their unconscious bias by consistently you know, looking at stuff, reminding them how to do things better, even if it's behind the scenes. And also solving challenges humans just cannot cope with today. For example, poverty, access to legal information, to their rights, and education, which is very dear to me. And you think in the developing world in particular that there is a real possibility of liberating and democratizing a lot of society by giving them access to technologies such as AI? Absolutely. But at the same time, there's also a big problem in that world, which is developing countries and certain groups such as women are more likely to be impacted by the job losses due to AI at the moment, for instance, you know, women are twice as likely to lose jobs to AI than men. And that's a problem we need to solve for, because um, if you don't design it correctly, the inequality that exists is only going to get wider. So the key from this talk is that design is absolutely central to all of this. Yes, and the purpose of what you're using it for, building it with the right ethics and measuring the impact on society and doing your bit to fix that and also talking to people who don't necessarily look like you. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you very much, Kriti. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, then please email us at tectonic at ft.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on your favourite podcast app. And if you write a review, that will help other people find us too. Thanks for listening. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.